electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right, Scott, thank you very much. And hi, everybody. Our special coverage continues here on CNBC. Today is day three of the Dow's winning streak, and it's now on pace for its best week since 1933. But what a difference a week makes. This time last week, the Dow was headed for its worst month since the 1930s as well. It all goes back to the global battle with coronavirus. The U.S. job losses this morning were just as brutal as expected. We're still waiting for Congress to pass the massive relief package. And today, more big companies are dropping bad news about job cuts and cash shortages. So what's an investor to do? We'll try to help you navigate it all. And we begin this hour with this big rally. And Bob Bassani has more on that. Hey, Bob. And it's rather remarkable where we have come here. First off, the jobless claims were worse than expected, but the market moved up on those numbers. That indicates that the whisper number was much higher. And in fact, on the whisper number, the actual number we reported was better than feared. We were 2190 on Monday morning at the low. It's hard to believe we're almost 2600 on the S&P 500. Uh, We're talking about gains of almost 18 percent on an intraday basis for the week. Ten to one advancing to declining stocks today. Ninety percent of the volume on the upside. Again, this is a third 90 percent upside day that we've had recently. That's certainly a, a sign at least some people are definitely buying at this point. Sectors, again, broad rally. It's not Banks just rallying or industrials. But if you take a look, you'll see healthcare up. Technology has been up generally. Uh, that's the sign of a really broad rally. In terms of individual movers, again, look at Boeing. Boeing was Monday $97. And now you're looking at it uh, at this big move up here. And that's not a typo there for Boeing up. So massive moves on the upside for Boeing. Chevron's also up nicely. American Express, United Technologies. And curiously, maybe not curiously, but all of the consumer names have generally been weaker. Remember, they were generally outperformers. In other words, they weren't down as much in the prior week. So we're definitely uh, going towards a little bit of what we used to call mean reversion at this point. Big, powerful rally still near the highs for the day. Guys, back to you. And broad base, too. Just like you said, Bob, thanks so much, Bob Pisani. Well, 3.3 million people filed for unemployment benefits last week. It's nearly a five-fold jump from the prior record in 1982. You can see what it looks like there on the chart behind me. And in an extremely rare move, the Fed chair, Jay Powell, did a live one-on-one interview this morning on the Today Show. Let's get to all of it with Steve Leisman, who joins us now. Steve. Yeah, Kelly, a very ugly jobless claims report and no way to sugarcoat it because it does speak of worse yet to come. Uh, That number, as you said, was about five times the worst uh, recent record, which was back 695,000 back in 1982. Uh, And and in fact, even during the financial crisis, you can see there on the right hand side of your screen, the worst one week gain in jobless claims. We'll see what happens to continuing claims. That's every time they add for a week, it goes on top and accumulates until uh, it reaches some form of a peak. Well, what kind of a peak? Oxford Economics writes, we foresee 15 to 20 million job losses in the coming weeks with the unemployment rate likely surging above 10% in April. Nariff Advisor says the unemployment rate is likely to go into the double digits. Both economists wrote that after the uh, stimulus bill or the details were known. So they obviously think that whatever is in the stimulus bill, it won't do very much 
to keep those numbers from getting, well, maybe they would be worse without the stimulus bill. Fed Chair Jay Powell, though, talking on the Today Show, says that uh, there may already be in a recession, uh, but the Fed is not out of ammunition and the Fed can lend any place where credit is not flowing. And then here's what he said about the outlook. You may well see, uh, you know, significant uh, rises in unemployment, significant declines in economic activity, but uh, there can also be a, a, a good rebound on the other side of that, and that's actually one of the main things we're trying to do by assuring the flow of credit in the economy and keeping rates low is to assure that that rebound, when it does come, is as vigorous as possible. Hey, Kelly, I just got a... Uh a new statement here from the New York Fed where they say they're going to buy agency mortgage-backed securities, quote, in the amounts needed to support smooth market functioning. And they directed the desk, this is the FOMC telling the, the desk at the New York Fed, to include purchases of agency commercial mortgage-backed securities in such purchases. So we knew they were going to buy these things. We, I guess we didn't have the instruction of in the amounts needed to support smooth market functioning. So, again, they're, they're in a no-limit situation here, Kelly. Right, and the numbers are just going to get uh, huger. What did you think, Steve, was the significance of Powell going on the Today Show, which no Fed chair has ever done? So I, I think the Fed took a lot of heat and got a lot of criticism back in 08, 09. It was maybe because of the particularities of the, the crisis that we faced back then. But the criticism, as you remember, was too much helping of the uh, the financial system, too much assistance for the wealthy, nothing for regular people. And I think the Fed chairman feels this need and the Fed as an institution feels the need to explain itself that it is going to be doing a variety of things and uh, to help Main Street, to help average workers. And in fact, what it does do is help average workers in making the credit and the financial system work. All right. Steve, we appreciate it. Good to see you. Steve Leesman with the latest Pleasure. there. So how should investors digest a Fed network on a, net, a Fed chair on a network morning show and today's record-breaking jobless claims? Joining me now is Michelle Meyer. She is head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Securities. And Peter Bookvar is chief investment officer at Bleagley Advisor Group. He's also a CNBC contributor. Michelle, it's good to see you. And uh, I am curious, I mean, the jobless claims figure was was on the worst side uh, of what we were looking for, 15 to 20 million more in the coming weeks. Um, you know, is there, it's kind of baked in at this point, isn't it? Well, you know, I think we're all still reacting to the high-frequency economic data. This is unprecedented times. We've never seen a shock this acute. It's effectively like a level shift down in the economy, and it's all happening at once. Um, so today's jobless claim number, I think, is just the first of many indicators that we're going to see that helps us to quantify how big of a hit this is to the economy. Um, if we stay on this pace, you can see job loss, you know, non-farm payroll numbers between four and six million loss in April, if not higher. So, wow. you know, it, it's an extremely big hit. It's all happening at once. Um, and if you compare it to prior cycles, think about today versus 2008. 2008 was the Great Recession. It was extremely painful, but it was felt like a more normal shock that was multiplying through the economy uh, over a matter of months and quarters. This is all happening suddenly. And Michelle, there are um, people like Mike Darda who say the Fed needs to set kind of a GDP target and explain to the public that once you're down 10 or 15 or 20 percent, it's not enough to go back to 3 percent. You know, you're down too far. You, you have to make up kind of that entire gap that you've lost. But that's a tricky thing to communicate for them. Or is it? Or could they do something like that? It's a very tricky thing to communicate, but I do think it's an important one to be able to note that they're trying to fill the hole. So 
again, when you think about GDP and you think about what's happened, I, I like to think about it as a level shift. The economy was running at a certain pace, and then you had this acute crisis, and we've shifted lower. In order to get out of that big hole that has now been developed and will continue to develop over the next few months, you need to see some pretty uh, fast acceleration. And our view is that it will end up taking some time. So from, the GDP, from a GDP perspective or policy perspective, maybe targeting a level of GDP would be reasonable. I mean, I don't think the Fed is going to actually go there. I think that's a hard thing for them to do in terms of being able to put a quantitative target. Instead, what they've told markets and what they've what Jay Powell told uh, today, the public, is that they are going to be the lender and the buyer of last resort. And they are going to do everything in their power to get credit to flow in the real economy, not and, of course, in the financial markets. Absolutely. Um, Peter, I'm going to come to you, but we have some news I, I want to get your reaction to. It's the seven-year uh, bond auction that just took place. Rick Santelli joins us with those results. Rick? Kelly, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked. Now, all of us would suspect that it, these auctions aren't going to be terrific because the markets are kind of wild. And yes, Treasury liquidity has improved dramatically. Deals are coming through. But this is a great auction. I gave it a B plus. Let's go through it. Thirty two billion seven year notes. Uh, when you look at two's five, seven, seven is one you think ah, that might be the roughest one. It's not the best issue, but it does correlate very closely to the average maturity of a mortgage. Anyway, so 0.68 was the yield at the Dutch auction. The one issue market was like 70, 71, 70, which means lower yield, higher price. Price really popped big on this. 2.76 bid to cover. The best since Thanksgiving of 2012, 62.4 above average for indirects. The only fly in the ointment, 9.1 directs, you know, 16 is 10 auction average. So I gave it a B plus. 113 billion in supply is now in the rear view mirror. And we see 10-year note yields especially are in the zone where almost every session grabs right around that 80 basis points. So that is kind of the high-frequency trade to pay most attention to. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thanks. And Peter Bookvar, I'll turn to you for some reaction to that. Does it suggest we don't have to be overly concerned about the mega supply coming into the Treasury market? I, I still think that remains to be seen. Because in, in order to come up with the $2 trillion that's going to be spent over the next couple months, they're going to have to raise it. And uh, Mnuchin, I think, a few weeks ago hinted at the possibility of uh, issuing some, some extra-long maturities in order to finance it. But that's really going to be the question, is, is, is finding uh, the amount of buyers that are needed uh, to, to, to raise that essentially $2 trillion. Should I mean, they? interestingly, they've gotten Go the benefit, of course, from this big drop in interest rates. I mean, today's seven-year yield auction at 0.68, it's about half the level that they sold paper a month ago. Wow, just a month ago. Uh, but then, again, look at everything that's happened. Peter, should they target the sort of households with this maybe 50 or even 100-year bond that's sometimes uh, speculated about uh, as a way to avoid having to massively increase the deficit? I think if they can find enough buyers at those maturities, then absolutely. The problem is finding that many buyers. I mean, I think that they've uh, surveyed the landscape of, of what kind of demand would be uh, had at 50 years or 100 years, and it's just not that much. So I think they're going to have to maybe focus more on the 30-year, but even that would be a benefit. That would help uh, at least manage um, the, the, the liquidity needs that the government needs right now and at least push out our average maturities. And at the same Peter, time. finally, what are your thoughts on the market action that we've seen here now that we expect tomorrow, I, I guess, to have this uh, relief bill passed into law? Secretary Mnuchin this morning said it would be 
three weeks uh, until those uh, checks are in people's bank accounts, the ones that they have direct deposit information for. Um, you know, what do you, what do you make of that? I, th- I think the market has reached a bottom. I think all the bad news we're going to hear about the virus over the next four to six weeks, all the terrible economic data we're going to see over the next few months, that has been priced in. The next question for the market is, is what happens after? What happens when we get to the fall and the economy starts to recover? Is it a V-bottom recovery, or is it something that's going to take a lot more time? Unfortunately, I'm in the latter camp. I think this has been a traumatic experience, both on the household level and the business level, and that it's going to be a long time before we can really be comfortable with the rate of growth. And then that's when the stock market's going to have to decide, okay, this reduced rate of earnings per share I'm, going to have, I'm not putting an 18 to 20 times multiple that I did in the early part of the year. It's going to be a low, lower multiple, and that's where we're going to have to decide whether we, we're going to need um, you know, further declines in order to reset. Yeah. Michelle, I'll give you the final word on that. What are your GDP predictions at this point? Sure. So we think Q2 is going to be very, very weak, double-digit uh, down. Uh, forecast right now is for a 12% decline in Q2 on an annualized basis for GDP. The risks are it will end up being more severe than that. And we would agree with, with Peter in that I, I do think the economy will return to modestly positive growth in the third quarter, but I think it's going to be really slow. So our current forecast, we don't have a full recovery. We don't have us making up the, the hole that was created until some point in the middle of 2021. Um, you know, part of that speed, I think, will depend on the policy um, impulse. So how effective is this policy Will we see more? I suspect we will. I don't think this is it. The $2 trillion is substantial. It's about 9% of GDP, but we can do a lot more, and I think that's probably forthcoming. Wow. All right, 2021, uh, even in that case, before we'd be kind of back where we started. Thank you both. Michelle Meyer and Peter Bovar joining me this afternoon. With those jobless claims jumping 1,000% in a week, my next guest also says this isn't the end and thinks we could see the unemployment rate spiking to the mid-teens. Joining me is Steve Odland. He's the CEO and president of the Conference Board. He's also the former CEO and chairman of Office Depot and AutoZone. Steve, when we last spoke, you were emphasizing the importance of, you know, keeping that consumer confidence in place, saying the biggest factor in that was layoffs, and now we're seeing them pile up. Yeah, and, and therefore you've seen the unemployment claims jump a thousand percent in one week. And remember, this is only through last Friday. Doesn't take into account this week and then the subsequent weeks. Um, this isn't the end because this is uh, this is caused by the government shutdowns, and we're only one week into it. So the key question here is when do you send people back to work, and how does that happen? Right now, the administration is saying, well, in the non-hotspot areas, we can go back in a few weeks. But they're getting incredible criticism for that. And they're saying in the hotspot areas, California and New York as an example, which are huge portions of our economy, it could be much longer. So the question here on forecasting the GDP and where this is going to end up is all about when do you go back and how does that look? And we're in an election year, which makes this politically very difficult. So our best guess is that we have a more significant two-quarter contraction than I'm hearing from others. We're saying minus 8% in the second quarter. We think the third quarter will be negative, and we think the year could be down 6% uh, annualized. But it's all dependent on when do you go back. Right, and going back is predicated on getting tests so that we know who has COVID now, who's already had it. Uh, again, Henry Schein may be with some, some progress on that front, at least, um, being able well, to, to clear those populations. Yep. 
it, it's not only that, it's what, it's what the medical community calls the herd immunity. In other words, the immunity in the population, because there is a, a probability, uh, if you look at past pandemics, of a resurgence in September and October. And if there's not the confidence that you can send people back in, you know, what's the cost of a human life? Nobody wants to lose any. So you're going to be cautious on that. That's what could extend this thing. So the immunization part of it is critically important. So you need to be able to test not the new cases. It's more important to be able to test the immunity of this thing. Now, we've got this relief bill coming, supposed to be signed this weekend. Mnuchin said checks will be in the hands in about three weeks. But the bigger issue is retaining these jobs because business leaders should be focused on trying to reduce pay in order to conserve cash mm -hmm. rather than layoffs and putting people on the street. Those loans through the SBA for small businesses and the bigger things, that's going to take longer than three weeks to ripple through. So we've got a huge period of time here, right? next month, six weeks before we've got clarity and that kind of stimulus. Right. And you've outlined a, perhaps a more pessimistic scenario than we heard this morning when Paul Tudor Jones talked about maybe a getting the economy kind of back or a peak in cases in early to mid-April. And we had Scott Gottlieb saying he believes that we will have better treatment uh, for COVID to prevent maybe a resurgence of this come the fall. And, you know, I, I guess these are just, as you said, there are three scenarios basically for how this could play out. And it's anybody's guess. Well, and, and then you have phase four of the stimulus being developed. Remember, governments are in precipitous, you know, precipitously bad condition. New York State, as an example, had a $6 billion deficit. Going into this crisis, you now extended the period of time before you get the income from the from the taxes by 90 days. They could be facing something like an 18 billion dollar deficit, and they can't. The states and localities can't print money. So the phase four is going to be to shore up municipal governments and shore up state governments. That's a further stimulus that needs to hit the economy before things settle out. Before the government part of the GDP equation is settled out. So that if you start piling all of these things up, you do, you, you see a two-quarter significant um, recession here, and that should trickle over into the globe, and it should be a global, unfortunately, a global recession. Well, uh, we're actually going to talk more a little bit later on about some of those state budgets and how bad they could be affected. So give us something hopeful to leave this on, Steve, before you go. Well, here's what's hopeful is the American spirit. We've been through it before. Every one of these crises looks dire at this point in time. And then when you look back on it, it looks like a speed bump. You know, and, and I think we're here again. If, you know, hopefully this is a bottom uh, and Americans know how to lead through this thing. And so I, I, I'm very bullish on the future. It's just the next couple of quarters are going to be tough. All right. You almost convinced me. Uh, Steve, it's good to see you. I appreciate it. Steve Odlin is the CEO of the conference board. Coming up, a new test is making its way to the U.S. that can not only detect COVID-19, but also 20 other infections with similar symptoms and all in about an hour. The CEO of that company joins us next. Plus, more and more restaurants are telling their landlords they won't be able to pay the rent come April 1st. We're going to look at the impact that could have on already struggling malls. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back. Dow's a little bit off the highs. It's still up about 900 points. But look at oil, which is now down 6.5%. It's back below $23 a barrel. The head of the IEA earlier saying that they expect global oil demand could fall by 20 million barrels a day. Uh, that's a 20% hit with 3 billion of the world's population in a shutdown. Meantime, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying just a short while ago that any realistic scenario about coronavirus will still overwhelm the health care system. Let's get all the very latest with Sue Herrera. Sue? Kelly, thank you very much. And before we get to Governor Cuomo, we just got the new numbers from Italy, and they are grim. Italy is reporting 6,153 new coronavirus cases. That is the most in five days. Total cases now total 80,539 in that country. The death toll up 662 to 8,165. Which brings us back to the United States, where New York's Governor Cuomo is acknowledging that New York is now the epicenter of the outbreak here in the U.S. He is working long hours fighting the virus that he does not want to sugarcoat the situation. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. Uh, We always said this is not going to be over quickly. I understand people are tired, but uh, I also understand that uh, people in this situation are really stepping up to the plate and are doing phenomenal work. All 5,000 personnel aboard the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt will now be tested for the coronavirus. Defense officials say at least 23 sailors have tested positive. The infected are being airlifted off the ship as operations there continue. So things are moving fast and furious. But as always, for more on the coronavirus coverage here at CNBC, go to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much. Now, a new FDA policy is helping to accelerate the availability of coronavirus tests, and that includes one from Germany's Kiagen, which can deliver results in about an hour. Meg Terrell is here with those details. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, the German company saying it's shipping that uh, test to the United States this week to potentially begin to be used. Uh, There are a lot of good things about this test. Now, it can return results in about an hour, as you said. It tests not only for the coronavirus, but also 20 other viruses that cause respiratory infections, including flu and the other coronaviruses that we associate more with colds. It is installed uh, in about 1,100 instruments around the world in hospitals, labs, and clinics. It can be run on those instruments, including about 200 in the United States. Uh, So there's a question about how widely will this be used and how much capacity will it add to the system. Additionally, Kyogen is a major maker of the RNA extraction kits that are used to run the coronavirus tests from other companies as well. So we've got a lot of questions about this, and joining us to answer those is Kyogen CEO Terry Bernard. Terry, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about this new test. And let's start there. How much capacity will this add to the U.S. system, do you think? So thank you very much, Meg, for this invitation again. I mean, we have been ramping up our uh, uh, manufacturing capacity uh, um, to uh, three shifts per day and seven days a week. So we are really ramping up the manufacturing of that one-hour time-to-result solution. However, I would like to insist on something. Uh, um, This is not just about Kyagen only. Uh, It's about uh, the uh, extremely good uh, cooperation of so many diagnostic companies currently, not only for the U.S., but also worldwide, to bring together solutions for testing more and more people as we speak. Uh, Kayagen alone could not be currently answering 
the entire uh, needs in the US. Uh, um, no, any other company could do that on a standalone basis, but all together uh, between companies like Roche, Thermo Fisher, Beckton Dickinson, Biomere, and Kayagen, uh, with all the solutions that we are bringing, Cefid also just announced that they would bring a test as well. Uh, all together, we are going to really be able to answer the needs. Uh, and a lot of folks have commended the commercial industry for really stepping up, especially as we saw those delays with the government test at the beginning. Um, how much do you anticipate that the Kyogen test that you're shipping out to the U.S. this week will be able to add in terms of capacity? Well, uh, I, uh, I have the ambition, we have the ambition as a company to ship thousands of tests per week. Uh, uh, and again, it's together with the other companies that we will have the capacity to really answer the needs. But as, uh, regard, as far as Kyogen is concerned, we are really uh, uh, betting now on thousands of tests to be shipped to the U.S. a week. And Kyogen also plays an incredibly important role as a manufacturer of the RNA extraction kits, which are necessary to run the tests. We understand you are dramatically ramping up capacity of those kits uh, in order to be able to supply everybody who's needing to run these tests. Where does that stand now? Can Kyogen meet the current needs? Well, once again, we are several companies uh, uh, manufacturing those RNA extraction kit, viral extraction kit, and all of us are ramping up manufacturing capacity. Once again, uh, three shifts a day, seven days a week. Uh, as far as Kyogen is concerned, uh, we are on our way to be able to manufacture uh, around uh, um, immediately from the month of April uh, or 10 millions of patients per month ramping up quickly uh, around May uh, to 20 million patients per month based on those RNA extraction kits. Right. So by April, you know, 10 million uh, potentially a month that you can be supplying. Right now, are you hearing from clients uh, in the field who are processing all of these tests that they don't have enough of these supplies? Uh, indeed, if they are just referring to only Kyogen, uh, like many other companies, we are in allocation of product. Uh, the fact that we have ramped up dramatically those manufacturing capacity doesn't mean that we can answer everybody to their full needs. Uh, so we are in allocation. We are not in back orders. We are delivering every uh, uh, laboratory in the U.S., probably not, their, not to their full uh, uh, request. But again, it's together with other companies, and in the case of extraction of uh, 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 nucleic acid, together with Thermo Fisher, together with Roche, that we can answer the demand. All together, not one company, it's a common effort from the diagnostic manufacturers. All right, Terry Bernard, we really thank you for joining us today, and we'll uh, continue the conversation with you. Uh, Kelly, sending it back over to you. Thank you, Meg. And Meg, before we go, what would you say is the big headline uh, from that discussion and, and from everything that, that Kyogen's up to? Well, that they are working together with the rest of the commercial testing industry to ramp up capacity. But uh, what we hear, of course, is that there is a need for tests in these test materials now. And so there's sort of a disconnect. Uh, these companies are working as quickly as they can. Um, but still, uh, you are hearing about these worrying shortages. So uh, it, is, it is concerning to still hear that. All right. That's still the major challenge. Uh, Meg, thanks for bringing that to us very much. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell. Still to come, can investors trust this rally? One of our next guests lays out three scenarios for stocks and how to position yourself for each one. 
Plus, the economic crisis is not only taking a major toll on households and businesses. As you heard a few moments ago, it's also going to hammer the finances of states across the country. Should we all expect to see our local taxes spike when the shutdowns end? Stick around for that. Our breaking news coverage returns after this break. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Stocks are losing a little steam this afternoon. We've gone from being up 1,200 points around midday uh, to now up about 750. Remember, though, we're coming off a two-day win streak for the first time in over six months. And we're off the highs after Italy just reported the biggest increase in coronavirus cases in five days. The Dow still up about 20 percent from its intraday lows on Monday and on track for its best week since 1932. And just as the federal government is set to flood the system with money, states could be hit so hard by the coronavirus that they may be actually forced to raise taxes before too long. Robert Frank is here with this sad state of affairs, Robert. Yeah, and some big numbers, Kelly. Now, the states really face two issues here headed toward this budget cliff. First, they've got the rising cost of unemployment and this health care crisis, coupled with the fact that revenue and tax collections have basically vanished with economic activity stopping. So they're going to have to raise taxes and or cut costs, most likely both. Let's take a look at New York State. So they went into this with a $6 billion deficit. They're now projecting that tax revenues could fall by up to $15 billion. So that is going to be a huge hole they need to fill. Legislators, they're already talking about a wealth tax, some kind of tax on high earners. But, and here's the key, their fiscal year ends in five days. So for New York, this is going to be a race against the clock as they're also trying to deal with the virus. New Jersey, similar situation. They're talking about what they're saying is a, quote, precipitous drop in revenues. Governor Phil Murphy there had proposed a millionaire tax even before the virus hit. That is still likely on the table, but even that would not nearly plug the size of the budget hole that they are going to have. Now, the federal government gives the states and counties $150 billion to help. That's not nearly going to be enough, coupled with the fact, Kelly, that when they extended the tax deadline to July 15th, that deprived states from that usual April surge of tax revenues that they normally get and rely on this time of year when a lot of their fiscal years start to end. So this is going to be a huge hit to the states. And we're all going to start asking the question in this recovery, when it happens, who is going to pay for all of it? And at the states, because they can't print money, it's going to be the taxpayers. Robert, a $15 billion hole is almost unfathomable. I mean, the best they can hope for, obviously, would be some kind of V-shaped recovery so that you all of a sudden get revenue pouring back in uh, to the state coffers. But absent that, um, you know, what other levers can they pull? I mean, even a millionaire's tax threatens to undermine their ability to, to raise future revenues. 
You're, you're right, Kelly. The numbers are huge. And as your guest, Steve Odlin, just mentioned, this is also going to present a problem for the recovery because if the federal government is trying to stimulate and the state governments are cutting costs and raising taxes right. at the same time, this is kind of what we had in 2008, 2009, that's going to prolong any kind of recovery at the national level, especially for big, important GDP states like New York, California, New Jersey, and Connecticut. We've been speaking with um, sort of muni bond uh analysts and traders uh, over the past week or two asking them, because conditions got pretty bad before the, the Fed stepped in to support them, you know, if they're concerned about this now being when the Meredith Whitney projection comes true, you know, famously about a decade ago, she said, you know, widespread bankruptcies were going to happen. Uh, and it didn't then, of course, but you wonder about that now. Will the federal government, you think, ultimately have to step up with trillions more dollars in order to fill this hole? I think they're going to have to step up again. Look, the muni bond market was just an incredible mess. I mean, the, the, the yields, what was happening, you look at uh, states like Michigan, Illinois. I mean, it was, it was really a crisis that was just underreported because the stock market was crashing so hard as well. The Fed came in, that rescued it for now, but, but no one knows what these state finances are going to look like, coupled with the fact that the legislatures in many states can't even meet right now for physical reasons, so they're trying to solve this remotely, and it's not going to be months, if not a half a year or so, before we even know what their situation is to even rate the bonds. Right, right. Robert, uh, thanks. We appreciate it. Robert Thank Frank. You. Up next, Cheesecake Factory is the latest big company to say they won't be able to pay their rent next month. And with malls already struggling big time, how big a hit will this be for them? We'll dig into that. And on this day, it's day 88 now of the global coronavirus crisis. Here are some of the haunting images from around the world. We're back in two. Welcome back. Cheesecake Factory is the latest major mall-based company affected by coronavirus. It's telling landlords that come April 1st, the check is not in the mail. Jane Wells is here to explain. Jane. Hi. Yeah, Kelly, Cheesecake Factory based not far from me. And while shares are up today, they have lost nearly half their uh, value so far this year. And so now, like perhaps many of its employees, it's telling its landlords it's going to skip the rent in April. Longtime chairman and CEO David Overton writing his landlords, quote, due to these extraordinary events, I'm asking for your patience and frankly, your help. Now, the company has said in these unprecedented times, they have to take into consideration both their obligations and their financial position, their health. It's a huge hit to a company with nearly uh, 300 restaurants and 38,000 employees. There's actually a change.org petition online to try to force the company to pay those who have been laid off. Certainly not everyone is laid off. The Cheesecake Factory tells customers it is still doing takeout and delivery in most places, but it has closed about two dozen stores and is reportedly drawing on a $90 million credit line. Now, most of its stores, it says, are in malls owned by Simon Property and Westfield. They've had long-standing relationships with them. And Simon Property shares, while also up today, have been down year-to-date even worse than cake so far. But it's an amazing story, uh, Kelly, for a chain that has been around for almost a half century. I remember going to the very first store in Beverly Hills uh, 40 years ago as a teenager. I mean, it's such a big deal. And, I, and also, you know, we talk about how this affects its suppliers as well, even though they're still doing some delivery and takeout. They used to joke it should be called the chicken factory because that's their number one purchase. That's Back right. to you. Yeah, we've seen that in beef prices, right, Jane, and chicken prices. There's People buying at the grocery store is not offsetting this drop, is it? 
No, it's not. And what's interesting is these uh, suppliers to restaurants and even some restaurants now are turning into grocery stores. I see it all over here where they will provide you with boxes of food that they have just to keep it moving and make a little money. Wow. All right, Jane, we appreciate it. Jane Wells. So our Cheesecake Factory's problems, just the tip of the iceberg for the future of the mall. Let's ask Jan Niffen. He is the CEO of J. Rogers Niffen WWE and a CNBC contributor. He joins me on the news line. Jan, uh, it's kind of the latest blow here for the mall. And as Jane pointed out, uh, Simon Properties down more than 50 percent this year. It's done even worse than Cheesecake Factory. How long can the mall owners weather this? Well, it's a big problem. They're getting hundreds of requests every day now or notices on people who like Cheesecake Factory or like Subway that you've recently read about are just not able to and not going to be able to pay their rent. And if they can't pay the rent, then it's very difficult to make your debt payment on the mall. And we're going to see bankruptcies, certainly among retailers. I don't know about mall operators, but they're certainly going to struggle as they have to deal with all of these people not being able to pay the rent. We've never really seen a situation before that lasted very long where the income at the retailer inside the mall went to zero for all practical purposes. After 9-11, we saw a real huge drop, of course, in traffic and a huge drop in sales, but it came back relatively quickly. Right now, a lot of these retailers are looking at sales down 90% because if you're not selling consumables, if you're not selling affordables, I guess I should say, your business isn't really happening. And even if you do a significant portion of it online, 25 or 30%, mm-hmm. people aren't buying what you're selling. So if you're not in the toilet paper, Clorox, hand sanitizer, bottled water business, your business has gone down dramatically. And how do you pay your rent? So These guys Jan, pay their rent out of cash flow. What the product's is, not going out the door. Yeah. They're looking at it and saying, well, it's not my fault that the mall shut down. Either you shut the mall down or the government shut the mall down. Why am I the one that's going to go broke? I'm just going to not pay rent. Yeah. So now there's going to be a huge fight going forward. Between and like you said, already seeing litigation owner. about this. Yeah. Let me just ask you, in the stimulus bill, uh, what provisions uh, would help either the mall owners or the, you know, the restaurants, the retailers get through this and get some relief? Well, first of all, we don't actually have a stimulus bill that's done yet. It still hasn't been signed and it hasn't been passed through the House. So I'm really kind of freaked out that it's waited a week to get done because it would at least put money back in people's hands, the restaurant owners and people like that. Maybe it's really going to be passed through to the employees and to keep them going. But the big players, they're not getting much out of this from the point of view of the government. What they're going to get out of this is better economic activity. But if what you're buying is not what they're selling with the money you're getting from the government, there's really not anything in this for big mall operators, big store developers, and big operators. That's really for the smaller people and for other parts of the business. But we're really not seeing anything that says... I don't have to pay the bank if I'm a mall owner because the guy that I'm leasing to can't pay me rent. Jan, do you think, is that because politicians were so afraid of this coming off as a big business bailout that they neglected uh, that necessary support? Or is the expectation that these companies should have other ways of getting that capital uh, from markets, for example, in order to stay viable? Well, I think what we're depending on is that the loan process will work. Because we know Treasury is going to do an enormous amount of loans with these businesses. And the question is, who do they go to and 
are you solvent enough to get the loan? The real rules sort of are, if you were solvent before COVID, we can get you a loan. So hopefully they can get loans to these guys fast enough. But that's really part of what Treasury is going to do. That's not so specifically part of this bill. But this bill does free up Treasury to take those actions. And they're already taking those actions, but now they'll have a lot more money to put into the system. That's what's got to save the big companies. What's going to save the small companies is going to be relief from having to pay all the, the employees getting money and putting money back into the system. But until we open the business back up, the world, until we start doing real business again, the people who are operating in the mall are in big trouble because they don't sell the stuff that Walmart, Target, people right. like Amazon sell. They sell things that are just totally discretionary. And you don't need another sweater if you're worried about having enough toilet paper and Clorox. Are there any companies in particular you're really worried about? Well, I'm really worried about all the companies, but all the ones that we've been worrying about, the mall-based guys, you know, Penny would be a good example. We've been worried about them for a long time. The remainder of what is left of Sears, we've been worried about for a long time. This just exacerbates all that. Last year, we closed about 10, 11,000 stores. This year, we'll close at least 20, given what's going on and maybe more. Last year, we had 19 retail bankruptcies. We could see 40, maybe 50 this year, unless something happens pretty fast. So those businesses were hurting already in a lot of cases. So all the ones that were struggling already, mall traffic was already dropping, but now it's dropped dramatically. So we're sort of advancing all the bad news we were going to have over maybe the next five or seven years Mm. all into right now. Yeah. And that's how it feels across the whole economy. All right, Jen, thank you. It's good to see you and we appreciate it. Thank you. Jen Niffen. We're getting some headlines from Steph Curry's Instagram live interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Sue Herrera has them, Sue. Indeed, I do. And uh, the discussion is ongoing on Instagram right now. Uh, Dr. Fauci basically says that coronavirus testing is going, quote, very much in the right direction. That's a little bit of good news. He says they will soon get some guidelines on how many days a person may actually wait after recovering from the coronavirus to return to regular life. And that could include going back to work because we don't yet know at what point are you completely resolved and non-contagious again. And Dr. Fauci says he thinks the coronavirus will indeed circle back into next season. He does not think it will disappear. That's worrisome. But he says that we will get enough experience from this current time and outbreak so that we will not have to lock down again if the coronavirus comes back. It is an ongoing conversation, Kelly, that we're going to monitor. But the key headline, I think, is that if it does come back, we might not have to go into lockdown. That's at least Dr. Fauci's opinion at this point. Back to you. All right. Once again, uh, in an interview with Steph Curry, uh, so we appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Well, stocks are trying to do something they haven't done in over a month, and that's rally three days in a row. We're back up 930 points on the Dow. Can investors trust this rebound, or should they wait for the markets to retest the lows? We'll debate that after the break. Take a quick look at shares of Slack. Before we go, it's pacing for its best week ever. Slack came to the market in June of last year as a direct listing, a big beneficiary of work from home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The fear coming into this crisis was that all the money in passive index ETFs could make any major market move lower, even worse. Well, is that proving to be the case or not? Our Dom Chu is covering that for us today. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, over the course of the past couple of weeks, every time there's been immense selling pressure in the market, you have seen some of the bigger exchange traded funds really dislocate from the market. And and this is an interesting point here. 
The reason why ETFs have been under such immense pressure is because some of them have been sold off so aggressively that they at one point in the sell-offs were actually worth less than the value of the portfolios themselves. That dislocation is something called discount to net asset value. It's basically a fancy way of saying these ETFs were basically trading at less than the actual value of the assets in the, in the actual portfolio. It happened a lot more in bond-related funds, credit-related funds, international country funds, and commodity funds as well. Here's two examples. One of them is the Van Eck Vectors High Yield Municipal Debt Fund. At one point, you can see there the sharp sell-off in shares. Take a look at this chart courtesy of the folks at Y Charts. Their data shows that at one point, this thing traded at about 28% below the value of the actual assets. One of the other examples to watch is the iShares India ETF, the ticker INDA. You can see there a sharp sell-off, yes, in the stock, but take a look at this. At one point, this thing traded about 8% below where its actual portfolio was before rebounding. Very big divergences, and again, that created some opportunities, Kelly, for investors to capitalize. But in the event of another downturn, these types of ETFs could be under immense stress again. Dom, those, those are more of the kind of, uh, I don't want to say esoteric, but uh, what about the, the broad ETFs? And the, any, any sign that that kind of passive money is uh, causing stock swings both to the up or downside? Sure. In, in some of the larger, very big, passively traded index tracking ETFs for things like the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000, typically those portfolios don't trade very differently than the underlying ETF price. But in some of the cases over the past couple of weeks, even those liquid, very traded ETFs dropped to very big historical lows against some of where they trade normally. So it's not just the esoteric ETFs, although that's where the most stress was found. Even some of the more liquid ETFs that track big cap stocks were the ones that felt big hits as well. All right, Dom, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. Dom Chu. So are there any signs of this market finding a bottom? Joining me now is Brian Belsky. He's chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, it's good to see you. And I guess that's the big question on everyone's minds right now. Are we going to retest the lows, so to speak? Well, I think you're going to hear a lot about it, Kelly. And we came out with our note on Monday, quite frankly, and said that we believe that the stock market in the United States was going to rally 40 to 50 percent from the lows. I think we're on our, our way. And, you know, we were accused of being Pollyanna and bullish all the time. But Again, these are unprecedented times, unprecedented. And I think that we as investors have to expect unprecedented upside after this unprecedented irrational trading on the downside. What we're dealing with is data that we don't typically deal with as investors. We're trying to be closet and couch epidemiologists and doctors, and, and our personal lives are affecting our, our, our work lives. And we're bringing that emotion to what's happening with respect to markets. That's why we've written a lot about panic is not an investment strategy. That's why we look at longer term. And that's why we talk about our conviction is resolute. Our conviction is resolute on the companies in the United States of America because we think clearly they're the best companies in the world. Yes, we're going to have very negative news in the next quarter or so, but we can't control that. How can you and what should you can control what you can control by really good companies, high quality companies? We think the best high quality companies are here in the United States. That's why we believe the market has rallied back up. And that's why we think we have more to go. Whether okay. or not we're going to retest, nobody, Kelly, nobody can, can predict the bottom, just like nobody absolutely predicted the top. That's why we want investors to stay invested in America. So let me re put it differently, and we probably only have time for one more here. Um, it, are people risking a big capital loss by putting money into the stock market right now? 
No, they're not. And you've seen a lot of, of, of tax loss selling already take place. What's really interesting is that, you know, I learned the business 30 years ago from William O'Neill. He was my very first mentor. And he used to tell me that institutional money is the smart money and retail money is the dumb money, just to put it bluntly. And we're seeing retail money. My calls with high net worth people have been very calm and not a lot of anxiety because they're positioned accordingly and they have been taking tax losses. It's the institutional money, the fast money that's missed this because they've been all one-sided, Kelly. So that's why it's so important to stick with the best companies from a longer-term perspective in sectors like communication services, technology, and discretionary to really take advantage of this rally. So you'd stick with quality as opposed to the stuff that's hardest hit? We would because I think, again, if you go back to my experience back in 08, 09, you had the low-quality rally right. after the after the market bottom in March. You have to be careful. So stick with high quality and stick with the best company. Well, you let me sneak in a final one there, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to see you, <laughs> you today, got it. Brian Belsky Thank you. of BMO. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.